Welcome to The Scrap Show, a production of Recycling Today. Covering the business of scrap metal recycling, we feature conversations about markets, technology, the industry's rich history, and the traditions and ways of doing business that stay reliably familiar. Listen in as guests from across the country and around the world, processors, traders, and industry allies provide insights and observations. The Scrap Show, a conversation between friends in an industry with a rich history and a bright future. Hello, listeners. It's Brian Taylor, Senior Editor of the Recycling Today Media Group, and welcome to The Scrap Show. It's in our name. We're here to talk about scrap recycling. Each episode, I'm asking the questions, and a scrap industry veteran joins me to provide some answers. Today, the person on the spot is Nathan Fructor, a man who's been trading ferrous scrap and other commodities for nearly four decades. And he's done so not just from the East Coast of the United States, where he is now, but from several other cities around the world. I think that's going to give us plenty to talk about. So let's get started. Welcome, Nathan. Good day, Brian. Good morning to you. Yes, and good evening to you. Yeah, we got a 12-hour time difference, uh, so our listeners know. Mm -hmm. uh, let's get started where it makes sense at the beginning. How and where and when did you uh, get your start in the scrap business? Well, I, uh, I had just graduated from Yeshiva University with a BA in economics, um, and um, I knew that I wanted to get into the commodities trading business because okay. my cousin at the time was trading steel for a large commodities trading company. And I had a bit of an idea and a flavor what his uh, life and business was like. And that sort of appealed to me. And um, so I was looking in uh, that direction, wanting to join one of the large commodity trading uh, companies uh, at the time. Uh, those were companies like Philip Brothers, Mark Rich, and Metallgesellschaft. Philip Brothers somehow had already started its decline in 1983-84. Things were already not going so well over there. Um, Mark Rich was the up-and-coming giant, and that was really the place to go to. Um, and by I had a short stint at a small, smaller trading company, and then I through a series of coincidences, I ended up meeting uh, a gentleman by the name of Alter Goldstein, who turned out to be the guy who would hire me to work in the first scrap department at Mark Rich. And uh -huh. over the years, he was not just my boss, but he, came, he became my mentor and really a close uh, friend. And I started in the scrap department at Mark Rich really from the bottom. That's how things were in those days. Anybody who wanted to be a trader was put through everything from A to Z on the commodity you would handle as a trader. So that when okay. you encounter a problem one day, whether it's final decision of what, how the problem should be resolved. So okay. I started in operations that may, also called traffic. Uh, that means uh, reviewing contract, preparing the contracts, keeping the position list up to date, um, reviewing the letters of credits, preparing documentation for letters of credits, invoices, certificates, and things like that. Um, in those days, there'd be some currency hedges for the scrap that was bought overseas in sterling or in Deutschmarks, um, assisting the, uh, the chartering uh, specialist with the charter parties, chartering vessels, all kind of discussions with owners, late time calculations. Eventually, with all that knowledge, a few years of that knowledge, you end up sort of 
moving closer to the trader and you become an assistant to the trader. And that's really how I ended up, um, um, you know, uh, becoming an assistant trader after a few uh -huh. years. Okay. Okay. Now you've indicated to me now that you've been trading for, well, I can think about almost four decades, there could be a big difference between FOB and CFR sales. Can you tell me why and, and what, that, what that might mean to someone who's not even familiar with those terms? Sure. So FOB is really when you freight on board, when you bring in a bulk vessel and you load the ship for the buyer and, you know, um, the, the buyer will charter the ship and your responsibility as the seller ends when you've loaded the ship. Okay. Um, and CFR is that, uh, you know, cost freight uh, insurance, all that is included and you are selling the cargo, shipping the cargo to the customer, and you are delivering it to him, to his destination. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a trader, you are really trained and pre-programmed the preconditions to be as comfortable with both FOB sales as CFR sales. Okay. Um, and there are many good arguments to be made for both uh, sales terms, for both for the sellers, the buyers, and the traders. Although the overall majority of steel mills who buy their scrap today in bulk really buy it on a CFR basis. They don't want to be busy uh, chartering their own ships. Okay. Uh, really the exceptional few who still charter their ships today for mm -hmm. valid reasons. Um, but if I rewind that say 30 years, for example, then the Turks would always buy all their cargos on FOB basis. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there was a hidden reason for that. The reason that was is that the Turkish government was giving 30% rebates to any Turkish steel mill or company who charters a Turkish flag vessel uh, and imports the cargo into Turkey. So um, many of the steel mills at the time actually owned their own uh, fleet of ships where they would buy scrap with or export the steel products on. Uh -huh. And that's how everything was sold on an FOBSD basis. Um, but They're kind of subsidizing point, their merchant marine fleet. Correct. But then uh -huh. at some point in the mid-90s, there was discussion of Turkey joining the European Union. And one of the conditions set by the European Union for that was that, you know, there can't be such preferential treatments and tax incentives and things like that. So as a result, they stopped this 30% rebates and right away, the Turkish mills slowly stopped buying on FOBST basis and they became CFR buyers. Okay. So they have the difference between FOB and CFR. So is CFR more work essentially, or is more more logistics work for a broker in that case? CFR is no, it's more work for the entire department. You have to break, wow. scratch your head, charter a ship, get it loaded, mm -hmm. see those inspections. There's all sorts of things that can go wrong, discussions with the owners, um, definitely more work. Yeah, yeah, okay. I mentioned this introduction, Nathan. One of the interesting things about your career is it's taken you many different places. Where are some of the places you've worked over the years? So I was very fortunate when I started. I uh, went to uh, Yeshiva University that was in uh, Manhattan, uh, okay. 185th and Amsterdam Avenue. And when I finished, I ended up living on the Upper West Side. And okay. uh, when I joined Mark Rich, they were located at the time on Fifth Avenue and 52nd Street, hmm. uh, which is very convenient. So really New York was my base for the first uh, four or five years. Okay. And then in 1988, as I had mastered uh, most of the operational um, tasks, I was transferred to London because at the time, Mark Rich was looking to open up uh, transshipment terminals 
in Amst in Rotterdam, and then we opened one up in Amsterdam, and then mm -hmm. we did another one in Antwerp. Okay. Um, and having grown up in Belgium, I spoke all these European languages, like uh, food, like French, German, and Dutch. Um, I was well positioned to go and buy scrap in all these countries and deal with the recyclers. So that's really um, what we did at the time. But we, I remained based in London, but I would find myself often two days a, a week in Amsterdam on a regular basis, two, three weeks every month. Because uh, we were continuously loading ships from over there. Um, there was talk at some point of moving to Amsterdam, but I, I didn't want to hear about it. I preferred to stay in London. It was better for my social life. So I stuck to that. But um, then in 1994, I really, uh, as I had a good handle on the trading, um, through a change of circumstances, I got moved into the front trading spot uh, uh, in London, together okay. with a friend of mine who I was running the department with, and we sort of split the globe into two. In between, we divided the globe between the two of us, and mm -hmm. I started to take uh, monthly trips to Istanbul right away because we were selling at the time two, three cargoes a month to Turkey. Okay. So a, I had to learn um, to I had to meet all the buyers, get to know the owners or the people that were negotiating the scrap and. They mm -hmm. always appreciate uh, the personal relationship with people and meeting new people and seeing who's the right. face behind. But that was more every, every two months. Uh, I parked myself in Singapore and then I, you know, Singapore would be a good springboard to visit other Southeast Asian buyers in Indonesia, Malaysia, and Thailand. Vietnam was not so much yet on the radar importing scrap. Okay. Uh, Bangladesh yeah. was also importing, but not as much as they are today, and therefore there was no real need for me to travel to those places. Indonesia, Malaysia, the two big buying markets for scrap, so was Thailand. Okay. And believe it or not, even Singapore imported bulk cargoes at the time. I remember shipping cargoes to Singapore uh, from Amsterdam, from Poland, and from other places. So they were doing bulk vessels at the time. And then um, in 1999, I actually moved back to New York uh -huh. uh, and I've been here ever since, really. Okay. But um, I'd say most of my travel was really in the beginning to visit the steamers to get to know the buyers, but then you continuously travel to visit the scrapyards, the buyers and the sellers. And every time you meet a new recycler that you want to buy from, you make it your business to travel to visit the yard to get to know them. The golden rule was always never ever buy scrap from a recycling facility you have not visited. And I have to uh -huh. say, the few times I didn't follow that rule, there were incidents where I, that I regretted uh, really? not having gone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you were based in Europe for about 12 years or do you have that man's right 11, 11 years. 11 years, okay. Yeah. So whether Europe or elsewhere, what, what, are, what's your, what are some of your favorite business destinations, either in the past or if you were to pick up and go somewhere right now, get in a plane, where would you want to go? Oh, Singapore. Absolutely. Uh, Singapore. Hands down Singapore. Everything just works clockwise over there. Okay. Uh, and it was a great uh, place to park myself for, let's say, two weeks and then do a day trip to Jakarta and back at night. Then a day trip mm -hmm. to Kuala Lumpur, to Penang and back at night. I preferred that uh -huh. than um, having to always pack up my suitcase, check out, check in, move on. I didn't like that. So th for me, that worked. And also, I have to love going to London. That's probably because I'm biased. I lived there for... For 10 years and I'm very sure. much at home in London but again a lot of businesses conducted in London a lot of international travelers come through London uh, or came through London over the years to visit and 
despite the fact that they left the EU, I still think people will continue to come through London on business. I don't think that part will change. So London and Singapore are my favorite. I'd say Tokyo is a close third. Okay. Yeah. Well, I know very, in... very different, and yeah. uh, the language is a barrier, but still something that's very respectful about mm -hmm. the Japanese uh, businessmen, the Japanese companies that I very much always admired. Okay. As someone who's in the process of moving to Singapore, I'm glad that's that's at near the top or at the top of the list. What well, in terms of a few tips for Singapore? Yeah, yeah. In terms of combining business with pleasure on your travels, how has that worked out? Is it something you've been able to do a little bit? Well, in, in earlier years, not really, because I would hit the road as soon as I landed and cram in as many mm -hmm. meetings as I possibly could. Uh, as I got older, I managed to take some sights in. Um, but still, there's so much more to see in some of the places that I visited over the years right. that I feel like one day I actually need to return to some of these places to have a good look around. Sure, that makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, back maybe more over to the technical or the work side of things. Um, I think in 36 years, it's safe to say there's been a lot more electric arc furnace technology put in place and, and capacity put in place. How has that changed the scrap business from, from a trader's point of view or has it? Well, my, my trader's point of view may be a little bit biased because I also happen to be uh, very much concerned about the environment, mm. uh, although I, I don't obsess about it. But um, I think the electric arc furnaces was a good move from an environment point of view. Okay. Uh, you know, more electric arc furnaces means more use of scrap mm -hmm. and less iron ore mined out of the ground. You know, right. every ton of scrap used to make steel. Uh, it means about a ton of iron or less being mined out of the ground. So mm -hmm. that's a good thing. I also think with more electric arc furnaces coming online, we saw an increase in scrap demand uh, mm -hmm. from those countries, uh, Turkey, India, South Korea, as the top listers here. And that also meant, therefore, that the industry itself developed and expanded, and all of a sudden, more volumes were bought and sold and recycled, and more volumes were handled, and all of a sudden, it really grew to a bigger yeah. industry. Um, companies would have to hire more staff. Scrap recycling facilities would look to process more volumes per year. As traders, mm. we would look to um, to handle more tonnage per year. So all that has a had a positive uh, effect. And um, I think the more people realize that it's really a better way to make steel, and if it helps the environment, then more efforts will actually be hopefully made to recycle right. everything that contains steel. Okay. How has that changed, um, I guess, grades or quality specifications of scrap? And, you know, what is your favorite quality or, or grade to sell right now in the global market? And maybe what's one you think is losing its luster? Well, my favorite qualities to handle is obviously the, the least problematic ones. So I would say definitely PNS or shortcut PNS is up there, plain structural. Um, it's usually very identifiable very good material and very clean cleaner than okay. the rest of it uh, -huh. uh shredded scrap is also one of my uh, favorite uh, qualities to handle because even though it can contain impurities but it's become uh easy to test and to sample they have all these methods of sampling it and you can really tell a good shredder quality from a yard than a bad quality than a bad quality although over the years i have to say 
the quality of the shredder products has improved. And I think that has okay. a lot to do with the new shredder machines and the new newer high tech that has been developed and better separation methods of the non-ferrous mm -hmm. items and the value that's been attributed to the non-ferrous items. So the onus is on the uh, processor to make sure every copper wire gets pulled out and so mm -hmm. forth. So right. PNS and shredded, I would say are my favorite qualities. Less favorite, I would say turnings. I would venture to say also bundles when I'm not really sure or comfortable what is really inside the bundle, unless uh -huh. I know the source very well. Okay, that's that's interesting. Interesting thought. Um, you know, another one of those things can change and and can change on a dime or can change slowly and be a trend. It would be freight and shipping. You know, over the years, have you noticed changes there? Have things gotten easier or things gotten more difficult? Um, I would say things don't really change so much in freight. It's a ship, mm -hmm. you load it, you got to pay a freight for it, and you ship it off to your buyer. Okay. However, um, every export sale has three components. It's got mm -hmm. a purchase, a sale, and a freight. Okay. And make no mistake, freight is a very important component of the ferrous crop export. It can literally make or break a deal. Mm -hmm. I'd say in the 36 years that I've been in this industry, we haven't really seen a significant change take place in freight and in shipping okay in mean, bulk shipping is still bulk, bulk shipping the only changes we have seen are really freight rates that move up and down for plethora of reasons okay um for example seasonal markets like the grain season will accept bulk uh, vessels availability in mm -hmm. certain regions mm -hmm. uh, because of the grain season there'll be more demand all of a sudden in south america for example Okay. Um, a maritime disaster, for example, uh, somewhere in the world on a specific okay. waters or so can affect vessels access or availability to certain markets. And mm -hmm. what better example do you need than that container ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal? A few I was weeks. about to mention that, yeah. Um, but we've seen freight rates do all kinds of crazy things over the years from being okay. extremely depressed and practically giving it away for free. Mm -hmm. to charging an exorbitant amount of freight. And here's a classic example I can give you. you know, I, I, I kept very good records over the years of unusual things. And one of, the, I, one of the unusual events I like to document is the following. In October of 1998, I was still mm -hmm. based in London at Mark Rich. Um, sorry, it was already Glencore. They had changed uh, the name. Uh, yeah. okay. It was already Glencore. Um, the freight market was very, very depressed. In October of 98, we chartered a 30,000-ton ship with two load ports. The ship was going to load about a half a cargo in Hamburg and then top off the balance of the cargo in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, we shipped it to Korea. Mm -hmm. Today, in 2021, no one will ship a 30,000-ton ship to Korea from Europe. It's not happening. But in those days, it was a thing that was done on a regular basis. Okay. And our freight, strange as this may seem at the time, many... Uh, listeners to this um, podcast will have a hard time believing this, but our freight was $16 a metric ton. Hmm. Now, fast forward to 2002, 2003, I was already in New York, but we, were char we chartered a ship that went from Gdansk, Poland, with 30,000 tons to Taiwan. Okay. Now, um, I'd say Poland to Asia shouldn't be much different, really, than two port Europe to, right. to Korea, Taiwan. So give or take three, four, five dollars at most, okay? Mm -hmm. But it's really the same ballpark. Yeah. But that freight was, the freight market was on fire. Uh, and that freight came in at $115 a ton. Wow. Okay, so we are $99 spread. Different yes. The highest freight rate I ever paid to the lowest freight rate I've ever paid. 
but only four years. <laughs> Correct. And as a side note, to, since I'm already giving you examples of uh, such difference uh, in high freights and low freights, mm -hmm. that particular Hamburg cargo was bought from the supplier in Hamburg at the time at $60 a ton FOB Hamburg. The Amsterdam tonnage that we were going to load in that ship was averaging an FOB cost of $72 a ton. Okay. Our Korean sale was at $96 a ton. Our freight was... 16, 16 so that yeah. is $80 cost delivered to Korea, and our cost was $72 for half the cargo and $60 for the other half the cargo. Okay, you can do the math, average. $8 margin on 15,000 mm -hmm. tons and um, uh, $26 margin on uh, the other 15,000 tons. Again, those things don't happen anymore today. Mm -hmm. you, you do not make those kind of margins. And in those days, as a trader, you were able to take bigger risk, uh, shortening the market or selling a cargo and then covering it in later on because things weren't as transparent. Today, you don't yeah. have the luxury yeah. as a trader to sell a cargo, keep it on the wraps for three, four weeks, and then having banked that the market will collapse, you go and buy it. It's no, you don't have that luck anymore. No, no. Okay. Now, Interesting. Me, yeah. So that's how we went on bulk. Right. Now, containers. I mean, when did that start becoming a factor for Ferris scrap? It's relatively um, recent or, or no? No, I think about the 19... Uh, scrap, Ferris scrap was always con considered a bulk commodity. Right. Um, I think the first time we heard rumblings about Ferris scrap and containers was about 1999, mm. 2000. Uh, I didn't get involved. Get in, I did not get into the container game till late uh, 2001. Okay. Um, because I had a hard time believing that it's really a thing, but it truly, mm -hmm. it was a game changer. It really opened up a lot of new markets who had never exported any scrap, like most Central South American and Caribbean markets. Ah, okay. And I would say almost all of the African countries that are located on the coastline. So mm -hmm. any country on the Western uh, coastline of Africa, as okay. well as on the coastline of Africa, of course, South Africa had been an exporter of scrap already mm -hmm. uh, in bulk, but um, that scrap became available just because there was ways of exporting it containers before oh, okay. that it didn't exist. And it also um, helped a lot of American and European recyclers, the smaller ones who mm -hmm. up until now were really beholden only to sell their scrap delivered to the bulk uh, exporters' docks. Right, right. They would sell it directly into the export markets. But obviously now they had the chance to be the guy that takes their containers into the export, their own materials. Mm. Although there was um, a lot of learning to do on, on that side. And many uh, recyclers <laughs> prefer to stick to the tested methods and selling it to the recyclers, to their docks who they've been selling it to for, forever. And others said, hey, we're gonna try something new. Um, but clearly the containers placed a lot more tonnage available in the export arena. Uh -huh. And for many buyers, there was an advantage to buying containers because it meant they were able to buy small tonnages, mm -hmm. no need to open up uh, always a letter of credit, and it wouldn't tie up $10, $15 million in their capital while uh -huh. a bulk cargo was underway. So there right. were advantages to that. That makes sense. Do you have a recollection of where some of those first containers you traded, where they went? Who, was, who were some of the mills that were pioneering my, this? My first containers went to Taiwan and Korea. Oh. Although the Indian buyers were the first ones, I think, that took that. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it was the first uh, containers with, with uh, Ferris 
went to India. Mm -hmm. If I'm not mistaken, I think the Oscar for inventing this part of the trade goes to a very courageous Indian trader who said, hey, we can do non-fersing in Danish. Let's do first. I really think it was an Indian guy and hats uh, off to the guy. For that. All right. Very good. This is 2021 now, Nathan. Do you prefer to sell bulk now or containers or how do you, how does that all pan out I, in your, in your mind? I, I'm, I'm old fashioned and I definitely, definitely prefer bulk shipments. Although okay. I've had my fair share of uh, container business for, um, I'd say about uh, 18 years. Okay. But I do a fair bit of bulk and I really prefer bulk. Hmm. Um, I just prefer it. Because the, the golden rule is always if you sell a 500 ton cargo or a 50,000 ton cargo, it's the same amount of work. <laughs> arguing the same debates, the same nonsense. Yeah. And containers is just, um, I, I'm not as, as much a fan of it as I was years ago. Um, and like I said, I find the bulk business uh, more rewarding from many aspects. Mm -hmm. And it also gives you a better feel where the market is. Ah, okay. Okay. You can sense, have better feel Where's the market? What's the availability? What's the demand? By the containers, mm -hmm. from my experience, it is more difficult to judge the needs and the demand uh, and the availability okay. on bulk. I find it's easier. Before somebody pulls the trigger on a bulk purchase, they have to know they need that scrap at that price. And so it just kind of yeah. sets the market more. Okay. Yeah. We, it's going back a little bit to the freight logistics part, you've had to ship out of and into you know all sorts of ports. So in terms of you know, characteristics of ports and their workforces and maybe their regulations and hurdles and customs. What's your favorite load port? What is an easy place to work from? Or just your favorite place to, to you know, to ship from? Well, we, I used to, um, in my career, I've had very good experiences uh, in Amsterdam, loading okay. scrap mm -hmm. uh, at the terminal where we operate, as well as in Antwerp. The picture you see behind me on the wall, that's our Antwerp terminal uh -huh. that I ran during the days at Glencore. And it was an amazing term. The stevedores there, were amazing. Uh -huh. um, no was not a word in their vocabulary. They really okay. always went beyond the line of duty and that was always very much appreciated. I think a port that has no draft limitations, no LOA, a beam or even a draft restrictions mm -hmm. is a good port, a good start. Uh, one way the stevedores are good at what they do and they know what they do and you know uh, they can load a ship quickly and get her in and out in no time. That is okay. a good port. That is a port uh -huh. you want to work with. And then what about ports that are accepting the scrap? Maybe you've had some experiences that weren't so great at ports around the world that you're able to comment on. <laughs> oh, please, uh, don't make me go there. I'm not going to mention them by names, like oh, I mentioned Amsterdam okay. and Antwerp or New York, but um, without mentioning names, you know, certain ports or countries, I would say a port with a really lousy discharge rate, one that has all kinds of restrictions, mm -hmm. It's not a port that I enjoy going to. Although one interesting story I can tell you about a discharge port. Okay. Uh, when my boss and mentor took his first trip to Bangladesh back in the early 80s or mid 80s, they were discharging a shredder car with that he, he had shipped from the United States to Bangladesh. Okay. And they didn't really have cranes and uh, that sort of equipment to discharge the ship. Okay. They needed ship's gears, but... Um, this when the way this went down was I don't know if you can picture the scene in the Middle Ages when there was a fire somewhere, a house was on fire. You mm -hmm. get all the villagers to come together and they would all pass buckets of water by hand. Bucket from brigade, one to the yeah. 
the water all the way up to the house till the they sort of um, poured the water onto the house. Well, that's mm -hmm. how the ships were threaded were discharged uh, in those days. Oh, Manually, have about 100, 150 uh, people in white uh, loincloths and barefoot, you know, walking around up and down the ship. That's how the buckets would be passed around to discharge a ship. It would take forever. The freight costs were very expensive. Port disbursements were expensive. The CNF price to Bangladesh at the time was very uh, expensive. Although I have to say they've come a long way today. It's a different world in Bangladesh. And again, right. hats off to them how things have improved over the years. That's hopefully it stays that way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You just made a comment earlier that you, you're very reluctant to buy scrap from a, a yard, a processing company or yard where you haven't actually been there and visited. So, and you've told me other times that traders really need to stay in touch with processing techniques and the challenges. How do you do that? How do you, from your, you know, obviously COVID-19 is a separate, uh, presents its own challenges, but in, in easier times to travel, how do you stay in touch with the processing side of the business? I think I may have said this in one of the early days interviews you gave me. Um, it's a very physical process. It's a very personal business. Mm -hmm. You have to regularly visit your suppliers, especially the first few years okay. when you start to visit them. Also, anytime a supplier buys a new piece of equipment, like a new shear, a shredder, a new baler, he'll tell you about it. He's excited mm -hmm. about it. And mm -hmm. you have to make it your business to ask him questions because you really want to know what his equipment is like and you make it your business to go visit him. I cannot tell you how many times I've gone, I've make, taken trips to visit suppliers because they had a new shear, a new baler, a new shredder, or you were to be invited for the opening or so. Um, suppliers love it when you show interest in the investment. For them, this is an investment into their right. business. Um, and you know, for me, I always find it to be extremely educational. Um, and rightfully so. I truly believe we should, as traders, we should be interested and support our suppliers whichever way we can, mm -hmm. uh, because after all, their supply is the lifeline to us making a living. We're traders, and without the recyclers' support and the processor's support to a trader or to the company he sells to, you don't have that uh, line of business. So it's really a two-way street, and whichever way you can help them out, you help them out. Uh, whether you feed them market information that they don't have, although that was different in those days than now. Now it's all out there. Um, it's like I say, you know, selling scrap is not usually the problem. You can always okay. sell a dollar cheaper if you have to. Yeah. It's getting the supplier support is really mm -hmm. important mm -hmm. and maintaining it. Without the supplier support, you don't have the means to make a sale. The old scrap is so, bought and, and not sold. Never forget. <laughs> Never forget your loyalties to your suppliers. I really mean that. Okay, terrific. Now, <laughs> yeah, back to equipment. I mean, uh -huh. uh, talk about the equipment. And I personally love roaming the grounds of the Expo Hall at Isri uh, and see, uh, but obviously, besides running into so many folks that, that you know and that you right. don't always have a chance to visit, I love to see what else is new in the recycling of steel, um, and other um, products like plastics and paper, mm -hmm. I'll stop at various stands and always learn something new. I mean, over the years, I've actually recommended some new equipment that I've seen at the uh, ISRI Expo to a handful right. of suppliers. And two of them actually bought a piece of equipment that I recommended to them because they liked it and, you know, uh, they got a good price. I, I'm always fascinated by new machines, shredders, balers, container loaders, I just love watching the demos and tour the yards and see how it all works. I find it extremely educational. 
Yeah, I think we're both looking forward to the days of in-person conventions coming back. 2022 looks like it's finally the year, or late 2021, hopefully. Um, you know, there, there's all sorts of ways the scrap industry has, can change in 36 years. What's something you would say has stayed consistent in the scrap industry in the, in the years you've been in, the decades you've been in it? Consistent, the trust between parties that will mm -hmm. always remain in order to transact in this industry. Okay. That's the one consistent thing uh, that is always consistent. Um, things that have changed, for example, communications has changed a lot. I mean, we've gone from telexes <laughs> to faxes to email, WhatsApp, SMS, etc. Right. The speed that things are being reported at is nothing mm -hmm. like is nothing like this uh, 30 and 40 years ago. Um, for example, sharing quality reports, videos, pictures. Uh, it's an instant press of the button of the WhatsApp and I can show my buyer in Taiwan what I propose to sell to him and right. look at it and say, yeah, it looks good or I don't like it. And other times you'd have to send uh, someone from the mailroom with your Kodak Roll film to develop the pictures, ask for two hours special service, look yes. at them, develop four sets and send them out by Curry. It takes forever to get an answer. Yeah, it's um, got to be astounding to think about the WhatsApp uh, click of a button yeah. versus yeah the 80s. Sure. <laughs> um, also, I, see, I think buy scrap requirements have changed over the years. I've seen mm. mills buying uh, more HMS and then switching to Shredder and then switching back at some point to HMS after they've had a chance to operate a few years in one way. Um, I think the overall cleanly quality and cleanliness of a lot of uh, supplies material has improved over the years mm -hmm. due to tougher environmental rules and regulations imposed right. on the recyclers. And I think as a result, also, the size of the quality claims have dropped uh, over the years. We okay. definitely see far less quality claims than we saw in the, in the 80s and 90s, for sure. Okay. Uh, the biggest changes of all, I would say, that I've seen in my 36 years in the industry is the fall of communism in 1989. Uh, when the Berlin Wall okay. came down in 1989. Right. was a game for scrap coming out of all the old communist countries. Sure. Um, also, the scrap of the container business, like I said, around 1999 or 2000 was a game changer. Um, China becoming an importer of scrap in 1996. Okay. And I say Vietnam, an importer at around 2005, 2006. Don't quote me on the exact year. I really mm -hmm. don't remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's no, I, I think I, I started writing about the industry in 1997. At that point, that scrap had been flowing out of the old Soviet bloc for a few years by then. And but it, you know, really didn't dawn on me just how that affected the supply and demand equation globally. That must have been quite, quite a change to have that much supply just come onto the market like that. But the other major, the country that's now producing more steel anywhere else is China. It's not necessarily consuming the most scrap, but What's been your experience trading with the People's Republic over the over the 36 years? How much, how has it changed? Did it make much of an effect on your career? Wow, Ch China is like a massive dragon. I mean, <laughs> um, my first um, exposure to Chinese business was uh, the name Madame Wang. Mm. In the early 80s, when I started at Mark Rich, uh, there was isolated cargoes of bulk were being sold to China. Okay. But you had to deal with a government entity. It was a government mm. company that was buying the scrap and they would send you the contract. And the, contra the piece of paper the contract was on uh, came folded in four, not like a letter in three, but folded in four because it was twice the size of a regular eight by 11 um, okay. piece of paper. And it oh. was on thin air, airline, airmail paper, those thin see-through papers. And we'd sit there, sometimes they would drip and we'd have to go get on our knees on the floor to sort of glue them, paste them back together. 
Um, I remember my boss and mentor taking his first trip to China in 1986. It reminded me a bit of uh, Nixon's first trip to China. I remember him telling me um, he was met at the airport by an official government um, representative who drove mm -hmm. him to the hotel. Um, and in the morning, he was being picked up at nine o'clock from his hotel. And about quarter to nine, he was on the balcony of his hotel room, looking out on the square, and it was all bicycles. And mm -hmm. the one car that pulls up is a black car, and it pulls up in front of the hotel and he says, I just knew that was the car that was coming to pick me up. And so it was. He goes downstairs, and he's being escorted to the car. Someone opens up, and that is the car he gets into. And uh -huh. all he saw was bicycles on the roads an occasional other black government car. Uh -huh. So that's how China really was doing scrap business in those days. Now, of course, everything has changed. My next collection of Chinese changes in business really came um, in May of 2003. I was in Oslo at the BIR conference. Okay. And I remember the word that was most repeated at that conference was China. Um, whether you stood in the lobby of the hotel mm -hmm. talking, mingling with the crowd, or you were networking, or you were in a restaurant, or any of the BIR sessions, or any conversation that was taking place, China dominated the section because everybody knew that China's going to start buying, and they are buying, and everybody was running to do business to China. They didn't make uh -huh. it easy, yet you needed the AQSIQ registration and other things like that, but everyone and their grandmother ran to China. Mm -hmm. and started to sell scrap to China. Um, somehow I didn't rush. I had other good buyers and relationships that I, at the time, decided I preferred to continue doing the business that I am, oh. that I'm doing. Uh, my reason at the time was everybody was running to China. I didn't want to be supplier number 755 mm. uh, sitting in New York with selling scrap. No, I wanted to be Nathan to the owner of the steamer in Indonesia and in uh, Turkey who knew me right. by name. friend. That's how I preferred to run the business. Um, that's not to say I haven't sold to China, but I haven't sold as much to China over the years as others have, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. But it certainly made a big, big change. Right, right, okay. Let's look ahead a little bit, Nathan. As of 2021, uh, do you see the scrap industry as a place that offers a good future for a young person? What would a 22-year-old 20, comes to you and says, Mr. Fructor, <laughs> I'm thinking about the scrap industry. What do you, what do you say to that person? Well, you, you have to enjoy what you're doing, but I think whichever part of the industry you are drawn to, whether it is recycling or melt steam melting or the trucking or inspections or draft survey or chartering ships, there's so many different facets to this industry of ours. Whichever one you are drawn to, you are part of the larger recycling industry and then you can venture into plastic paper and glass as well. So it's really like one big family in many ways and you are automatically part of a global movement. And I see this every time I walk the halls of uh, ISRI convention, the people you run into, the handshakes you get, the hugs you get from people that are happy to see you again or you've dealt with, yeah. or, or at the BIR conference, the same thing, or at the IRPAS conference, that means something. So, you, so yes, I think there is a future. And also governments and many different parts of the recycling industry will continue to try and make positive changes uh, from an environmental point of view. So you're bound to be in good company. And as long as ferrous scrap, me scrap metal remains the main component in steel making, I think you are sitting pretty well in the ferrous scrap industry uh, if you want to make a, a choose to make a career in this industry. Okay, that's encouraging. It's good to hear.
What about something that maybe if you were the czar of the overall steel and ferrous graphitry, what are some things you would like to see happen that, that, would, be, that would be new or different, something that could change? Anything that comes to mind? Well, what I'm really excited about, what I'd like to see a new thing is, uh, I'd like to see this uh, new Taiwan Ferris uh, Futures contract ah, okay. um, take life, mm -hmm. which the LME expects to launch sometime, I think during the summer, I don't know the exact date. Right. Um, I think the, the buyers, the sellers and the traders of the scrapping containers to Taiwan mm -hmm. are good target, is a good target audience for this particular contract. Oh, okay, okay, that's that's good to hear. I know we've had discussions. You've you've been kind enough to share with Recycling Today some of your thoughts on that and what what it might take to prompt a little more hedging activity. And that, that seems like you 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 sort of see a potential green light there with that Taiwan contract container contract. Yeah, that particular one has me excited. Okay, good. What uh, kind of looking at the other direction? If this same young person is asking for your advice or to someone who's already in the industry, what are some things you think as a ferro scrap trader, one should never do in this industry or you know, you advise them to you know, don't make this particular mistake? What, what would be something that falls in that category? Never, ever, ever, ever ship a cargo to anywhere without having sold it. Oh, never. Okay. I know there are, there's, in bulk, it doesn't really happen, mm -hmm. but uh, although I do know an incident where it did happen once in the 80s, but uh, in containers, it's happened plenty and many uh, aggressive traders will punt and they will, um, you know, make, um, um, you know, they'll make a sale in containers because the price is good and, you know, they expect prices to go up even further and they'll sell the cargo as the ship is a week or two out of destination so on and some people have done quite well with that but okay. everyone has done quite well with that he's gotten burned at some point where he had containers on the water and there was no taker for it because the markets crashed so that's Boy. i would never ever ever dare do that now you asked me before so i wanted to come back and something you asked me before about changes in the industry what i'd like mm -hmm. to see happening so right i mean truthful i'd like to see some environmental ministries in certain countries to take themselves a little bit less seriously and get a life, okay? They should drop some of the ridiculous rules and regulations they have imposed on scrap imports to their countries. The additional layers of inspection and certifications that is required in certain markets is plain simply absurd. It gets to a point where it becomes a pain in the ass, pardon my French, to ship mm -hmm. to and sell to these markets and at some point you say to yourself, it's not worth the aggravation. I'll just sell it somewhere else. And I've had sellers of containers. Uh, I've been in discussions with sellers of container sellers where we've discussed buying a cargo from them and I'm getting close on price. And then okay. they say, oh, wait one moment, please give me your promise that you're not selling this to a specific country that has all these crazy rules and regulations. And I've, I sense this pain and it's extremely problematic. And, I really don't understand some of these ministries. It's like they they want to that they think they are they want to be more orthodox than God. Basically, you know, <laughs> you know, you are helping the environment by shipping scrap overseas. There right. are inspection procedures that are in place in the ports. Don't make life impossible for people in the industry. Those guys, I think, need to get a life, and they should ease up on those restrictions. 
Yeah, I've heard the comparison on the non-ferrous side, and it certainly also applies to ferrous scrap versus iron ore. Even the purest iron ore or the purest copper concentrate is still going to have way more residuals than any load of scrap, just about any load of scrap you could possibly put together. Um, let's, I'll close with kind of a two-part question. Our time is unfortunately already toward, toward the end here, but the one question would be, are there any regrets as you look back at 36 years and say, ah, I wish I had done this differently? And then to end on a more upbeat note, you know, how would you care? Are you are you glad that you hope the answer is yes? Are you glad you chose this industry path, scrap industry, and why? But we'll start with the regrets part maybe first. The regrets part, yes. I mean, you spend 36 years in an industry and you learn from mistakes. And mm -hmm. uh, yes, I do actually do have a few regrets, and some of them may surprise you. Total, I wish I remember I told you early on that I went through the process of learning operations and you learn everything from the ground up in right. the, the ferrous crop trades that you are. You have all the you have all the knowledge you need to be a successful trader. Uh -huh. But now that I'm trading, I realize I, I must have skipped a few parts. And <laughs> I wish I had spent two or three months early on in my career in a recycling company in the yard mm -hmm. to see how they process the scrap, how it is sorted, how they sort the different grades. Uh -huh. Not that I don't know that from my thousands of visits to recycling facilities over the years worldwide, but you tend to learn more about that side of the industry when you spend two, three months in such a facility, you okay. get to cut a piece of scrap. And I know from another tra tra well-respected trader in the industry who has actually done that. Uh -huh. uh, another regret is the same thing on the steel mill side. Truthfully, mm. I wish I had spent a month in a steel uh, plant observing their steel making process better knowing more about their scrap quality requirements, their sorting, their grading, the way they receive the scrap, and just have an overall better understanding of the steel making process in general. Okay. Uh, and one other thing I would say is I, I wish I had paid a bit more attention to my chemistry classes and maybe <laughs> one or two extra courses uh, in addition to my basic college requirement uh, science. Um, I think that would have helped me along as well. So I empathize with that one, Nathan. When I was hired by Recycling Today in 1997, I literally went to my local library, took out a metallurgy textbook, and tried to start going through it back to you know, front to back just to get caught up on what I had kind of not paid much attention to necessarily in high school and college. <laughs> and then the, the overall questions, are you, are you glad you've, you've done what you've done for 36 years? It's been an interesting ride. You know, like, I think like any profession, it's got its ups and its downs and there were good days and there were bad days. But mm -hmm. um, I think I've been blessed to work for really good companies. All the companies I worked for, uh, whether in the States or in Europe, uh, they were all leaders uh, in, their, uh, in, the, in the industry. Okay. And meaning leaders in the scrap recycling industry as well as scrap trading and leaders um, as companies and that in itself, I feel very blessed. And I also had the luxury of traveling the world, not just for the sake of trying, but getting to meet so many people from so many different uh, countries, backgrounds, religions, origins. And uh, it just really shapes, I think, who you are. Like, you know, I could sit at, uh, at the table with my family and uh, have a conversation about, oh, tomorrow is Greek, uh, Orthodox Easter or, you know, um, next week uh, starts the Ramadan or something like that. And you only get this from, from getting to know people across uh, different continents and different, uh, and different walks of life. So, wow. yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, 
I guess I'm happy the way it's uh, progressed and where you are now. And you just look forward uh, to a few more interesting projects coming your way, basically. Yeah, outstanding. And actually, I'm glad you, you said that, that transitions to the, the, what I wanted to make sure everybody knows. Nathan is far from retired. You're a very active trader. You're still going in the industry. And how do people find you? They can find you on LinkedIn. They can sometimes find you in Recycling Today. But uh, your oh, Adoru Trading is your company? Yeah, Adoru Trading or Adoru Trading Consult and uh, with more emphasis on the consulting parts of the industry. Okay. Uh, but uh, no, LinkedIn is a great place to start. Uh, all my contact details are there. Um, and people just know me in the industry. So, and yeah. I really thanks to Recycling Today magazine. I uh, often enough get a chance to, to, to voice uh, what I want to say sometimes. So Yeah, we're very happy to do that, Nathan. Well, everybody uh, listening out there, that's been our, our Scrap Show edition with Nathan Fructor. Maybe there'll be a second one down the road because uh, it's always a pleasure for me to talk to Nathan and I hope he feels the same way. So I want to conclude the podcast by saying thank you very much, Nathan. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Recycling Today. It's been a pleasure talking to you today.